would uh, certainly invite you to open your Bibles back up as I open mine. Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The book of Romans, the letter to the church at Rome. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. My text this morning is one I'm sure that's very familiar uh, to many of you. Uh, I've preached uh, several times from this verse myself, uh, but uh, it's always got something new and fresh for me, and I trust that it will uh, for you also. Uh, My message this morning is entitled, The Gospel, What It Is. The Gospel, What It Is, and the Reason For It. The gospel, what it is, and the reason for it. Look with me, if you would now, Romans chapter 1. I'll begin reading with verse 13, read through verse 17. My text actually this morning will be from the 16th verse. So if you would, uh, look with me now in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes, For I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Precious portion of God's word. It tells us some things that we all desperately need to know. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord again, if we could, please, and ask uh, that God might be pleased to open the eyes of our understanding, that he would give us a heart receptive, a heart that is able to hear and know and and understand what he would speak to us through his word this morning. So you bow with me, if you would, as we pray. Once again, loving Father, we bow before you, acknowledging that in and of ourselves we have no right to do so. We have any merit that makes us worthy of coming before you such a majestic, high, and holy God. But Father, we are so grateful this morning that we can come. We can come into your presence. We can come boldly into your presence. We can bow before you because we come in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We come not, Father, trusting in our own goodness, but trusting solely and only in the merit and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus himself, who has been put to our account. And for this, we give thanks. Lord, bless the time we spend here now in your word. We pray that you would, as the uh, letter to Timothy that Paul wrote tells us uh, that the word of God is always profitable. We pray that you would make it such in each of our hearts today. Make your word a profitable word to us, Lord. Use it to work effectually in each of our hearts and lives for your honor, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, how I pray this morning that your will would be done in each life. Lord, enable this, your servant, 
unworthy as I am, to speak this morning in demonstration of your spirit and of your power. And I'll give you praise and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel, what it is. In this verse, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, let me read it again. Would you just listen very attentively once again to what the Apostle Paul says here? And by the way, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul or any of the other men who, whom God chose to pen various portions of the Scripture, they did not speak uh, that which came from their own thoughts and their own uh, life, but the words that they spoke and the words that are recorded for us in God's Word are just that. It's God's Word. It's God's Word, the living, powerful Word of God. And we trust this morning that we'll experience the, the reality of that in our hearts and lives. But listen very attentively to God and what He says through Paul right here in verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe it. And he went on to say, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or, or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether who you are, where you are, or what your circumstances may be. The gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who will believe it. And in this particular verse, the Apostle Paul tells us that the gospel is indeed the power of God for salvation. Now, salvation, uh, that which... Uh, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for or unto. Uh, salvation necessitates, number one, an understanding of our need for it. Uh, it also necessitates a righteousness that is acceptable in the eyes of a righteous and just and holy God. It necessitates as well a, uh, a conformity to God's standard of holiness, which, by the way, he has never compromised from day one. Never compromised. He has a standard of holiness, that standard that is demanded by God for every one of us, which every one of us fall far short of. And in the last place, uh, salvation also will necessitate a sufficient price to pay the wages of our sin. Oh, we need to give some thought to that, don't we? Because if we do, we'll soon find that all of these things, uh, all of us fail to have. We fail to have them. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 tells us that uh, we, have no, uh, we have no righteousness. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, we have no righteousness. Uh, verse 11, I believe it is, says that we have no understanding uh, these are things that are foreign to us in our natural state. We have no understanding of the things of God, nor do we have a righteousness that is pleasing in God's eyes. Furthermore, uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, where God said back in the book of Leviticus, it's recorded, and Peter is quoting it, saying that God says, I, the Lord your God, am holy, you be holy. And that's not a suggestion only. That's not something we can leave or take or whatever the case might be. That is an absolute imperative. For the apostle will say some, at some point in his letter to the Hebrew Christians, 
recorded in the book of Hebrews that without this holiness, without it, none of us will ever see the Lord. It is absolutely essential, this holiness. And price to pay for our sin. <laughs> we, could, we could gather together all the riches of this world and we could offer them unto God to pay the price for our sin and God would never accept it. Because all that we have in and of ourselves and all that we might attain unto ourselves will be tainted and it will be contaminated by sin. Therefore, it's unworthy as payment for our sin. Well, we need to consider something for just a few moments if we can. Let me jump on over here a few few pages and uh, uh, let's not forget what really happened uh, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, some of us, or a big part of us, are somewhat familiar with what's recorded in the first few chapters of Genesis. And we need to never forget what really happened there in the Garden of Eden. And it's a part of God's creation, the Garden of Eden is. Now, the creation in general, the creation itself, in that we see a glorious display of both God's wisdom and power. But when we come to the Garden of Eden, we see something else in addition to that. We see there that God has put on display... Uh, a picture of his own eternal kingdom in the Garden of Eden. A picture of his own eternal kingdom. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in the 14th chapter of Romans, uh, in verse 17, uh, what, or he describes for us uh, what the kingdom of God is really like. And he says there that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. In other words, it's not, it's not comprised of physical things like eating and drinking and and other things related to physical life. But he went on to say that the kingdom of God is spiritual. In other words, it is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is according to what God directed the Apostle Paul to write. But you'll remember, I think, that uh, there in the Garden of Eden when God created man, created a wife for him, placed them there in the Garden of Eden, that there was indeed righteousness. It was a righteous place. God looked at it and saw that it was good. And, and that means it's righteous. And so it was righteousness was there. And peace was there. There was no division between Adam and Eve. So they had peace with one another. But much more importantly than that, there was peace with God. Peace with God. Nothing to separate uh, man from God. Nothing to stand between God and man. There was perfect peace there in the Garden of Eden and joy. My joy. Can you imagine the joy that must have flooded Adam and Eve's hearts as they were literally able to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day? I can't imagine that. What joy must have filled their hearts uh, in that condition there in the Garden of Eden. But uh, it didn't stay that way, did it? it didn't stay that way. Uh, before long, Satan came along in all of his subtlety and uh, in the form of a serpent, and he deceived Eve by lying to her, uh, whereas God had uh, made it very clear, uh, some stipulations 
uh, a stipulation, I might say, is recorded in Genesis chapter 2, where he said in verse 16 and 17 to Adam and Eve, now you can eat of any tree, the fruit of any tree in the midst of the garden, except for one. And in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you shall surely die. Well, Satan came along in the form of a serpent. In very subtle ways, he (coughs) approached Eve and he said, God didn't really say that. God didn't really mean that you would die. You're not going to die. He just knows that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be as God, knowing good and evil. Knowing what's good, knowing what's bad. And Eve succumbed to his deceptive words and she believed the lie that Satan told. And Adam followed right along with her and he also disobeyed God, rebelled against God by partaking of the forbidden fruit. And what happened? The picture, the picture of God's eternal kingdom was marred. It was destroyed. There was no longer righteousness in the garden because sin had entered in. And righteousness is the absence of sin. Righteousness is what is good in God's eyes. Sin is far, far from good in the eyes of a holy God. Righteousness was no longer there. Peace was no longer there. I don't know. There may have very well been some animosity and some arguing and some fighting going on between Adam and Eve. But much, much worse than that. There was no peace with God. God was no longer at peace with Adam and Eve. They were estranged from Him. They were alienated from Him. They, did, they, they experienced exactly what God told them they would experience if they ate of the fruit of this tree that they were forbidden to partake of. They would die. The death that they, were, they received immediately was spiritual death. Spiritual death, which separated them from God and gave them no longer any fellowship with God. A travesty. A travesty happened in the Garden of Eden. And joy, no longer. No longer do they experience the presence of God that fills us with joy. The psalmist says, in the Lord's presence there is fullness of joy. But oh, when sin enters in, there's no joy because God is no longer present. Well, the picture of God's eternal kingdom was marred and destroyed. Uh, None of those things were no longer seen in the Garden of Eden. No righteousness, no peace, and no joy. Adam sinned. He sinned. He did what God told them not to do. He rebelled against the commandment of God. He disobeyed and he sinned. And one of the consequences, one of the consequences, and how terrible this consequence is for each of us, One of the consequences of Adam's sin was that all of us have also sinned. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He went on to say a little bit later in chapter 5, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and that man was Adam, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, and for that all have sinned. All have sinned. We're all sinful. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. Uh, well, where does this, where does this leave us? Years following what happened there in the Garden of Eden, shortly before the flood, perhaps, 
The scripture tells us that God would look down upon mankind, and what did he see? He saw that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually before it. Jeremiah will record that God says that the heart of man is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Well, does it mean that we have no hope? We have no hope of being saved from the consequence of sin? Uh, Are we without hope? No, we're not without hope. For God has made provision by His grace through His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, As we saw last week, because of Him, because of Him, uh, if you recall, we were last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, where it says, because of Him or of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, That's what we saw last week, that we are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, Christ has made unto us all that we need to be satisfied in the eyes of God. Of Him, of Him are we in Christ Jesus, who has made unto us all that we need to be saved from our sin. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what God would have us to understand the gospel is. Now, I know that uh, I preach an awful lot on the subject of the gospel. Uh, The truth be known, what else is there that I'm supposed to preach? God called me to be what? A preacher of the gospel. A preacher of the gospel. Sad today that so many who call themselves preachers hardly ever get around to preaching the gospel as it is in God's word. But that's what God would have us to preach. Didn't Jesus say shortly before he ascended back to heaven, back to the Father's uh, right hand, did he not give a commission to the church and say, in the words of Mark, found in Mark chapter uh, 15, and uh, chapter 16 and verse 15, didn't he say there, go into all the world? and preach the gospel to every creature. The commission that Christ gave to the church right before he ascended back to the Father, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the Apostle Paul would say, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul would write a letter to Timothy and in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul will write to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. That doesn't leave many times out, does it? In season and out of season, preach the word. Always preach the word. Now the word, uh, if you recall from the many times we've considered what John wrote at the beginning of his gospel, where he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word, the eternal Word of God. Verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that? That is Jesus the Christ, God's only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. 
That's what we're to preach. Paul explained what preaching the word and preaching the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, if you care to look at that with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul explains here very briefly what preaching the gospel or preaching the word is. He said, we preach Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ and him crucified. Jump down to chapter 2 just a little bit further there. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, or I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel. The gospel. Preaching the gospel is to preach Christ. Preaching the word is to preach Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is in all reality good news. In the original text, which was written in the Greek language, the word for this translated gospel in most of our Bibles is euangelion. But the literal translation of that word is good news. Good news. And the only really good news that there is for sinners, like all of us when we are when we come into this world, is that God has united those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only good news there is. Isn't that what Paul was really saying uh, there in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says that because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us everything that is essential for salvation. That's the only really good news that there is for sinners. Uh, and this is what Paul was saying there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. I get my fingers to work, we'll go on here. Now then, we need to know, we need to know what it means to be in Christ Jesus that Paul is talking about there. We need to know and understand what it means to be in Christ. And uh, I can recall years ago, uh, reading the many, many times in the New Testament, especially in the uh, writings of the Apostle Paul, where he uses that phrase, "in Christ, in Christ," so many times. Sometime look at Ephesians chapter one, the first. Oh, about 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and just count how many times there Paul talks about what is ours because of our being in Christ. Well, he begins it by saying, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in and through Christ. We need to know and understand what that means. If you want to turn with me uh, to Paul's letter to Galatia, First uh, and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, the third chapter of Paul's letter to Galatians, following Ephesians, after First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, excuse me, Galatians, just before Ephesians, Galatians chapter three, third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. I want to read to you verses 26 uh, through 28. I, I found that uh, these verses give us some insight into the phrase in Christ and, 
help us to know what it means. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I might just pause right there. And when we read of being baptized into Christ here, that is not a reference to water baptism. Water baptism is something that we do in obedience to the command of Christ as an outward and public confession of the fact that we have put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus. We enter the waters of baptism and we're immersed there in the water, which shows that we have died with Christ and we're buried with Christ and we're raised up out of the water. Uh, a picture of being uh, given new life in Christ, to walk in newness of life. But this is not about water baptism here, where he says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to these Christians in Galatia. He's reminding them that because of their faith in Christ, by the grace of God, because of that, they now have a brand new identity. A brand new identity. Uh, since they've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, as Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. To be baptized into Christ means that we are identified with Christ, having left our old sinful life. And in reality, we need to understand that leaving our old sinful life and the desire to leave our old sinful life is repentance, which is required. We're required to, to repent of our sin. That is, to turn from our sin, to leave it behind, uh, to want no more to do with it. To be identified with Christ is uh, to leave that old sinful life and on the other hand to fully embrace a new life in Christ. And that's faith. Leaving the old life, the old sinful life being repentance and embracing a new life in Christ, that's faith. That's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me at Romans, the book of Romans again, this time in the sixth chapter. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 3. Romans 6 and verse 3. A few verses here. Paul says, beginning with verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives unto God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. When the Holy Spirit regenerates, quickens, makes one who is dead in sin alive unto God. And that's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. We, because of our sin, are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the Spirit of God must give us life. He must quicken us. He must make us alive. And that's exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't even understand the things of God's kingdom unless he's given a new life, a new heart. The old will never understand. The old will never know. Doesn't have understanding. Can't have understanding. The carnal mind, Paul says, is enmity to God. It doesn't receive the things of God. Neither can it know them because they're spiritually discerned. But the natural man is dead spiritually. Oh, but when the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God regenerates or makes alive, He baptizes. He baptizes or He immerses, uh, as the Greek word baptizo is literally uh, translated. Uh, to be baptized is to be immersed. And so when the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ, He immerses us into Christ. Oh, if we were to take the time, we could look and in the book of Ezekiel. Let me just turn there quickly and read just a few of these verses to you. We're all the way back in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel uh, paints a very clear picture for us of uh, this that we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit regenerating or making one alive. Chapter 36 of Galatians, if you want to look at it with me. Beginning with uh, all verse uh, 25, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from, from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules regeneration, being made alive unto God. The prophet Ezekiel is telling us about that all the way back in the Old Testament. And then if we were to go on to the next chapter there of the prophet Ezekiel's writing, we would find him there illustrating uh, this matter of being made alive unto God where he talks about this valley of dry bones. And he tells uh, Ezekiel, you know, to prophesy to these bones and and life begins to come back as he prophesies again and the Spirit of God blows upon these these bones and they, they come to life. Uh, regeneration, being made alive unto God, which is an absolute essential. And to, 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 to be made alive unto God in this manner is to actually be immersed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes our life. And several places in the Scripture speak of the believer being in Christ. One of those places is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Philippians 1, one. Here the Apostle Paul begins his letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. To all of the saints in Christ Jesus. And by the way, saints are not some, some class of super-Christian. Saints, Christian, period. 
Anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, according to God's word, is a saint, and saints are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we are united to him. We are immersed in him. He is our life. First uh, Peter chapter 5, the fifth chapter of Paul's, or Peter's first letter, the fifth chapter and uh, the last verse, verse 14 of this letter. He says, greet one another, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There it is again, in Christ. Back to Romans, back to Romans. You're going to wear your fingers out turning to Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 3, third chapter of Romans, verse 23 through 26. Here Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance which He passed over former sins. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. How important it is that we understand what it means to be in Christ. It means that God Himself has joined us to His Son, the Lord Jesus. Our life is hidden in Christ uh, as God's children. Now God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice and His justice is perfect justice. He doesn't overlook or excuse our sin. You know, we have a tendency from time to time, you know, when I, perhaps our children do things that are contrary to what we would have them to do, sometimes due to various circumstances, we kind of like sweep, sweep under the carpet the things that they've done and put it aside like that. God doesn't deal with sin like that. God doesn't deal with sin like sweeping it under the carpet. Uh, sin has got to be paid for. And so all of the wrath that God holds for sin was poured out on His Son for those who are in Christ. The price had to be paid. Somebody had to pay it. Jesus bore the price. There is a chorus that we have sung in the past that says, I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. He paid it. He took it upon himself. He paid the price for the, for the sin of those whom God has joined to him. When Christ took our place on the cross, he suffered everything that you and I deserve. On our behalf, he did that. Jesus' last words before he died on the cross are recorded in the, seven, uh, the 19th chapter of the gospel according to John. And there Jesus said, it's finished. It is finished. He wasn't talking about his life is now over. This is it. I'm dying. This is the completion of it all. Because we know that he rose from the grave. He did die. But he resurrected, didn't he? He came back to life, and he lives forevermore. And so he wasn't talking about that. What did he mean then when he said, it is finished? What he finished on the cross was everything that was necessary to save those whom God set his love upon from before the foundation of the world. He did it all. Nothing is required of us. 
except to trust him, except to believe him. He paid the price fully. Not a bit remains to be paid. He paid it all. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I know. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying that he had fully paid for every act of rebellion against God. Past sin, present sin, and future sin. All paid for. That's amazing grace, isn't it? That's amazing grace. None of us deserve that. None of us merit that. None of us are worthy of that. It's all by the grace of God in Christ. In Christ. If we're in Christ, God has accepted his sacrifice as payment for our sin. And there are no amount of good works that we could ever do that could merit forgiveness and a right relationship with a holy God. No amount. Oh, we, we come into this world hoping and thinking that, that we have enough righteousness of our own that God will accept us, that God will be pleased with us. Oh, yes, we do some wrong things, but, but we do enough right that God's going to be satisfied. He'll accept our righteousness. Not at all. Isaiah the prophet says all of our righteousness, every bit of it, is in the eyes of God nothing but filthy rags. Just filthy rags. Never anything in us to satisfy God. Look with me in Romans chapter 4, would you? Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now then jump on down to verse 23 and following. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Wasn't just said for Abraham, but for all who, like Abraham, trust God with all their heart, put their faith and their confidence in Christ and in him alone. God, if we do so, places our sin on him and his righteousness on us. What an exchange that is. He takes my sin. I get his perfect righteousness. Freely bestowed. Freely bestowed. Not earned. Not merited by me. Freely bestowed. Because God put me in Christ as a believer. Can you imagine? God places our sins on him and his righteousness on us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To enter into the presence of a holy God 
We've got to be clothed with perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. It's only found in Him. Perfect righteousness is only found in Christ. To be in Christ means that God no longer sees our sin, but He sees the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul will say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our sin alienated us from God. Our sin separated us from God. Our sin made us distant from God. But the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us to cover our sin brings us near to God. Brings us near to God. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. The 8th chapter of Hebrews and verse 12. Here the apostle says that God has spoken and said, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Remember their sins no more. Oh, there is, there are places in the scripture such as the one that says God takes our sin and removes it as far from him as the east is from the west. There's another verse that says that God buries our sin in the deepest sea. Oh, but the one that I like is the verse that says God puts our sin behind his back where he'll never see it again. Never see it again. All because we're in Christ. All because we're in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we have a perfect righteousness now that makes us acceptable in God's eyes. But only in Christ is our debt of sin canceled and our relationship with God restored and our eternity secured only in Christ, only in the Lord Jesus. To be in Christ is good news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. To be in Christ is good news. Let me close, if I can, with another brief word from Mr. Spurgeon, who's been such a blessing so many times to so many of us. He's speaking on Ezekiel chapter 37 that says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Spurgeon said, This is the greatest and most remarkable of all changes, to be brought out of the grave of spiritual death and made to rejoice in the light and liberty of spiritual life. None could work this but the living God. None could do it but the living God. And he has. He has done it. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what the good news says. It is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe it. Let me ask you in closing, do you believe it? Do you believe it? To not believe it is to suffer God's condemnation and his wrath. To not believe it, to not put your faith and your trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, is to perish with no hope. To suffer for all of eternity. Pain for sin that can never be paid. 
all but to believe on Christ, to trust in Him, is to have all your sin debt paid, to be made acceptable in the eyes of a holy God and assured of an eternity in His very presence where there is once again perfect righteousness, perfect peace, and everlasting joy in the kingdom of God. Will you be there? Oh, I pray that you will. I pray that you'll trust Christ with all of your heart. Lean only upon him. Believe with all your heart in what God said his son has done. Let's bow before him, can we?